I feel it a privilege and a blessing to be able to be with you this morning in this session of conference. To follow President Kimball is something I've tried to do now for about seven years. And if I can succeed, I'm going to make a go of it. So happy to be with you this day. Take of the spirit that's always present in the conferences hear this tabernacle choir, to hear the sermons and the leadership of this great church. Though I have not prepared to talk at all, President Kimball asked me if I'd like to say a few words. I would like to bear my testimony to my friends, businessmen, children, and to the world. I have had the great privilege of being with four presidents of this church and to see how the Lord works through them. One cannot doubt when he sees that, that they are prophets of God. They're leading us in the path of truth and righteousness and helping us to prepare ourselves and our children for eternal life. You know, we are spirit children of God, and we were present when they decided to form an earth here where we could come and dwell and prove ourselves worthy by keeping the commandments to come back into the presence of our Heavenly Father. That's why the earth was created. Jesus Christ was chosen as the Savior of the world. He gave us a plan of life and salvation that was given to the prophets back in the old days, as recorded in Genesis and elsewhere. The earth was created so that we might have a place to dwell and prove ourselves by keeping the commandments we are worthy to go back into his presence. We know who we are, where we came from, why we're here, how we can get back into his presence. We're very fortunate in having a testimony and teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. I hope and pray that all of us will do our best to perform the duties that are given to us, to lead lives of example, make our influence felt <coughs> for good wherever we are. And I do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I once heard President Hugh B. Brown relate this inspiring story. Some time ago, a great actor in the city of New York gave a wonderful performance in a large theater, at the close of which there were rounds of applause. He was called back again and again. Finally, someone called to him, would you do for us the 23rd Psalm? Why, yes, I know the 23rd Psalm. He recited it as an actor would, perfectly, with nothing left to be desired as far as a performance was concerned. When he was finished, again there was thunderous applause. Then the actor came to the front of the stage and said, Ladies and gentlemen, there is an old man sitting here on the front row whom I happen to know. I'm going to ask him, without any notice, if he will come and repeat the 23rd Psalm. The elder, elderly gentleman, of course, was frightened, trembling. He came to the stage. Fearfully, he looked out over the vast audience. And then, as though he were at home only with one, he closed his eyes against the audience, bowed his head, talked to God, and said, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. 
He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And then changing to address the Savior directly and intimately, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When the old man finished, there was no applause, but there was not a dry eye in that house. The actor came to the front of the stage. He, too, was wiping his eyes, and he said, Ladies and gentlemen, I know the words of the 23rd Psalm, but this man knows the shepherd. President Benson has given us a key so that we might become as one who knows the shepherd. He has told us to learn of Christ necessitates the study of the scriptures and the study of the testimonies of those who know him. We come to know him through prayer and the inspiration and revelation that God has promised to those who keep his commandments. There's a silver-haired Argentine sister who knows the shepherd. She has given a long life of service to the Lord, his church, and her fellow men. The first time Sister Meller attended a Mormon church service, she was brought by the missionaries. They felt that she was the most sophisticated, cultured, and best-educated investigator they had ever met. They held a few meetings in her lovely home, and when they invited her to accompany them to a Sunday church meeting, she readily agreed. The service was being held in an old building. The members attending were of somewhat humble circumstances compared to the new investigator. The service did not go well by the standards of the two missionaries hoping to impress their guest. The branch leaders had just been recently called, and they were still learning their duties. There was some confusion at the pulpit. There was an interruption at the sacrament table at the most sacred moment. The sermons seemed to be less interesting than those desired by the eager missionaries. The reverence was threatened from time to time by children moving or crying. There was no organ to provide deep religious sound. The missionaries agonizingly thought of the negative impressions their elegant investigator must be receiving. They knew she normally worshipped in a very fashionable cathedral where everything would have been highly professional and the congregation would have been of the highest strata of local society. So on the way home, one of the missionaries began to reflect his embarrassment. and He explained, Please excuse our present building. Soon we will build a lovely new chapel here. And then he added, Please excuse our new leaders. We have a lay priesthood, so we take turns conducting, and the new leaders are still learning how to conduct services. He was just about to give another excuse when Sister Hertha Meller turned to him and said somewhat sternly, Elder, don't you apologize. It must have been like this at the time of Christ. With her spiritual eyes and her knowledge of the shepherd acquired through studying the Holy Scriptures, she saw through centuries of tradition. She saw past cathedrals and organs. She saw back through the corridors of time to the shepherd 
meeting with his humble fishermen apostles, with some sinners, and even with leper outcasts. She saw the early saints meeting in a small, rented upstairs room. She saw children with the Savior smiling at them lovingly. Because she knew the shepherd, she could say with profound and deep insight, It must have been like this at the time of Christ. She exemplifies to me the admonition which many have followed, Fill your mind with thoughts of Christ, your heart with love of Christ, and your life with service to Christ. Today there stands a lovely chapel presided over by a well-trained lay bishopric where Sister Miller first attended church about thirty years ago. There is one man above all other men that I feel truly knew the shepherd. He was the first living prophet on the earth after many centuries. He wrote an account of the first time he saw the Savior in vision. I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head above the brightness of the sun, which descended gradually until it fell upon me. When the light rested upon me, I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defy all description standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, Joseph, this is my beloved son. Hear him. The young prophet continues describing this unprecedented and heaven-opening event. My object in going to inquire of the Lord was to know which of all the churches was right, that I might know which to join. No sooner, therefore, did I get possession of myself so as to be able to speak than I asked the personages who stood above me in the light which of all the churches was right and which I should join. I was answered that I must join none of them. For a period of ten years, Joseph the prophet was taught by resurrected beings, by ancient prophets who returned, and angels from beyond the veil. And then, one hundred and fifty years ago, he was instructed by the Savior to formally organize his Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Subsequently, the prophet had other mighty visions of the Master, the resurrected Redeemer. Listen to his description of one such manifestation. The veil was taken from our minds, and the eyes of our understanding were opened. We saw the Lord standing upon the breastwork of the pulpit before us, and under his feet was a paved work of pure gold in color like amber. His eyes were as a flame of fire. The hair of his head was white like the pure snow. His countenance shone above the brightness of the sun, and his voice was as the sound of the rushing of great waters, saying, I am the first and the last. I am he who liveth, I am he who was slain, I am your advocate with the Father. The prophet who wrote that description knew the shepherd. The prophet Joseph met a martyr's death. He died for his testimony, sealing his witness with his blood. We pay tribute. To him as the first prophet of this dispensation and the most important prophet of all dispensations of time. 
He has done more, save Jesus only, for the salvation of men in this world than any other man that ever lived. We honor Joseph Smith this 150th anniversary year of the founding of the Church, a prophet who knew the shepherd intimately. We should each ask, Am I loving enough? Am I studying enough? Am I serving enough to know the shepherd? May we all come to know the Savior through obeying his commandments, that when we meet him face to face, we each can say, I know thee, thou art my shepherd. This I testify in the name of Jesus Christ, our loving shepherd. Amen. During these few moments, my beloved brothers and sisters, I would like to bear witness to the fact that God's laws are anchored firmly and securely in place by eternal priesthood principles. Gospel truth stands as a pillar of peace, security, and freedom for all who would avail themselves. And I further attest that the ultimate and revealed truth, light, and eternal insurance, assurance is inseparably connected with the temple of the living God. Those sacred buildings reverently and accurately referred to as the house of the Lord. A temple of God in this day and age? How can this be? Most God-fearing folks think only in terms of ancient temples, for that is when prophets lived among the people, and that was more than 2,000 years ago. Come with me inside the temple, a modern temple on, uh, in our day, a temple that has been dedicated to the Lord, just as ancient temples were, a special building where sacred ordinances are performed by those who have been commissioned with appropriate divine authority, the temple is indeed a house of quiet worship. Everyone speaks softly, usually in whispers, and all who participate dress in white. All who come have been found worthy and clean. The temple is a house of prayer, for Heavenly Father is glorified by every ordinance performed performed therein. He who enters for the first time receives a pronouncement of special blessings that are not available outside the temple. The temple is a house of instruction—yes, even divine instruction—instruction about God's eternal plan for His children. In the temple, one gains a superior perspective about his personal relationship with his Maker and with the Savior—yes, special knowledge about God and Jesus Christ, which is essential to the obtaining of life eternal. And this is life eternal, state the scriptures, that they might know thee the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. The temple is a house of revelation, yes, continuing revelation, whether that revelation be to a prophet or a member who seeks after truth. All who come to the temple seeking are continually taught and edified. The temple is a house of commitment and sacrifice, for it is truly stated that there can be no true worship without sacrifice. The saints sing, Indeed, sacrifice brings forth the blessings of heaven. The temple is a house of solemn covenant, where one appropriately commits himself to live a more Christ-like life, 
Oh, that four billion people on earth could enter into that kind of covenant. The temple is a house where young people are married for time and for all eternity. Thus a common bond is formed, a bond that transcends the earthly pitfalls of misunderstanding, distrust, and too often divorce. The temple is a house of eternal relationships, a place where families can come for the purpose of transferring, transforming their family circle into an eternal family unit, where all of a sudden, together forever, becomes far more important than the next trivial family difference. You see, eternal families reason together in family council with Dad at the head. The temple is a house of God where all of those declared worthy are extended the privilege of performing the sacred ordinances of the temple on behalf of their forebears, that in very deed the hearts of the children might be turned to the hearts of the fathers as foretold in the Holy Scriptures. Like all of Heavenly Father's blessings for His children, the eventual realization is always on condition of faithfulness and conformity to priesthood principles. The ultimate blessings of the temple are centered on the love and devotion between husband and wife. They must set the example. They are the core. The scriptures say it best of all. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. Everything in this world that is counter to a tender and loyal husband-wife relationship is a tool of the adversary. Everything that promotes and perpetuates family unity—mother, father, and children—properly endowed with and motivated by the light and truth of Christ is in harmony with the Lord's plan for mortal man. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, honor your husbands. <clears throat> Look to the gospel for all solutions to your problems. Be a proper example to your children. That's where it all starts. The poet Longfellow expressed it well in these words, As to the bow the cord is, so unto man is woman. Though she bends him, she obeys him. Though she draws him, yet she follows, useless each without the other. These poetic phrases are in harmony with temple teachings. Just hours after a disastrous flood in Idaho a few years ago, one man who had apparently lost every, every earthly possession wept bitterly. His despair was not so much over the temporal loss he had suffered, but rather and far more important, his lovely wife and four children were unaccounted for and presumed drowned. But within the hour, good news came. His family had been miraculously saved and were waiting for him at a nearby emergency facility. The reunion that soon followed was a scene of supreme joy and happiness. His comments in the midst of, that, of the jubilation was classic, for he stated, I have my family again, and although I stand without one earthly possession, left to my name, I feel like a millionaire. He, each family member nodded concurrence, for you see, this family was a very special family. They had recently been sealed together for all time and for eternity in a temple of the living God. Just yesterday it was my privilege to be present as a lovely young couple knelt at the altar of the temple. Each was dressed in robes of sparkling white. They were surrounded by a host of family and friends as these special words were spoken as part of the marriage covenant for time and for all eternity. 
You see, such was the precise nature of their forever marriage. Oh, that all people everywhere could be touched by this divine teaching of light and truth that makes such a union possible, not for just a select few, but for any and all of God's children who might properly prepare themselves, but it must be done in His way. Eternal marriage is so sacred that it can only be performed within the walls of the temple and only by those who have been endowed with proper divine authority to bind or seal on earth that which will be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you seal on earth shall be sealed in heaven, and whatsoever you bind on earth in my name and by my word, saith the Lord, it shall be eternally bound in the heavens. Now let me introduce you to a group of 25 teenagers who have come to the temple at dawn to participate in the sacred ordinance of vicarious baptisms. These young people have been found morally clean and worthy by their bishop. You see, bishops today are bound by the same guidelines as bishops of old, who were also taught, Who shall ascend in the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul into vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. There has always been a standard in the house of the Lord. That standard is purity and cannot be compromised. These teenagers came in the spirit of reverence, with a desire to do something for others who have lived before. One teenage girl made this comment, Being baptized by immersion for one of my ancestors who lived in the 1700s made me very proud. I felt that she was right there with me. I know she was pleased and accepted the work that I did for her. These teenagers were performing an ordinance that was practiced during Paul's ministry, for he wrote to the saints of Corinth, Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? This vicarious work for the dead, which was obviously practiced during New Testament times, as attested by Paul, was obviously an important ordinance taught by the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ following his crucifixion. Proof of this is found in Paul's own words as he bears testimony to the Galatians. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached to me is not after man, for I neither received it of man, <clears throat> neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Thousands of people worked long hours in the temple to perform not only baptisms for others, but other vicarious ordinances as well for those who have not had the opportunity while in mortality. If it were not so, the scriptures attest, the whole earth would be utterly wasted at his coming. The Savior had the power to provide immortality for the entire human race. We have the power to do vicarious work for only one at a time, but it is for the same glorious purpose and made possible by the same authority. Again, I quote the voice of the Lord, For if you will that I give unto you a place in the celestial world, you must prepare yourself by doing the thing which I have commanded you and require of you. Ladies and gentlemen, due to worldwide broadcast commitments, we regret the necessity to interrupt the closing comments of Elder Robert L. Simpson of the First Quorum of the Seventy during this 150th semi-annual conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. 
We do so to pause briefly for station identification. It's always a great thrill to me to hear the witness and the testimony of President Kimball and President Tanner, how we love them and appreciate their great service. Each uh, year, as I have the opportunity of uh, planting a few seeds in fertile soil, watching it grow, and then this time of the year of going out and watching the bounteous harvest, I'm always amazed at how one little kernel has produced a full ear, a hundredfold over that which has been put in the earth some months before. I think the uh, Savior appreciated this process, the growth cycle the Lord has given to us. For we find lesson after lesson in his parables teaching about the blessings the Lord has given to us in this marvelous law of the harvest. We find parables of the sower, the seed growing by itself, the fig tree, and so on. Is it any wonder that we found his disciples teaching after his earthly ministry, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. As I've gone throughout the church in the last six months, I've been listening listening to the voices of frustrated parents, listening to the urgent appeals of youth, listening to the small voice of a child. My ears have been filled with concerns. These concerns have all been centered on what has happened to the basic, secure, fun-loving family, traditional family, that has been in existence since the establishment of man and woman on earth. Suddenly we find great forces at work to relegate it to a minority position. Recorded history is clear on what occurs if we ever allow that to happen. In the book of Jacob we read, Behold, ye have done iniquities far more than our brethren, the Lamanites, our brethren. Ye have broken the hearts of your tender wives and lost confidence of your children because of your bad examples before them. And the sobbings of their heart ascend up to God against you. And because of the strictness of the word of God, which cometh down against you, many hearts die, pierced with deep wounds. Now unless we would turn from the course all too many of us are pursuing, we too would stand the same judgments of God. Contemplating these words of the scripture, I had a terrifying thought one morning. What if the clock would be turned back 15 years in my life, and suddenly I found myself in a 1980 environment with two teenagers and a small child again? The thought terrified me. I was so thunderstruck that ideas started to flash through my mind. What would I do? How would I meet the challenge and cope with the problems that the family is having today? Four areas flashed through my mind that would require renewed determination and effort. First, in family finances. To provide for a family in this day and age would be more difficult. Employment is not as secure. 
Change is occurring at an ever-rapid rate. It would be much more of a problem to maintain our standard of living in the inflation we know today. Housing, utilities, food, clothing, the gas-guzzling automobile are all taking a larger share of our family income. The pressures on family finances could increase family tensions. Coping with this new problem would be a major challenge. Then suddenly I heard a comforting voice saying, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not to thine own understanding. In all ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. I suddenly realized that the church has been preparing me for a time of stress and strain for many years. Today, a long-range family financial plan is clearly needed in every family if they're to have the blessings of missions and a good education. It would have to be carefully worked out in every detail. The avoidance of debt, fundamental. The living within my income, essential. Much thought must be given to keeping my family finances properly balanced. Expenditures must be challenged. Do I really need a giant-sized home with the same giant-sized monthly mortgage payments? Is a second car required? Can my family-centered activities replace costly commercial entertainment? Can vacations be made exciting at home? Having a one-year supply moved up in the family priority list. It must be considered again, and how it is obtained, rethought and evaluated. Can our own labors produce more in making our own clothes, increasing our garden yields, preserving our own food? How can I wisely save so that inflation will not rob me from it? Is my career path secure and able to keep pace with family needs during this ever-changing decade of the 80s? Yes, assuming the responsibilities of caring temporally for family requirements would require much more thought, preparation, planning in the environment we live in today. Second, family organization. I heard a young mother in a testimony meeting not so long ago bear witness to what the Lord had entrusted to her. She had said how disappointed she was in the new Sunday meeting program. For as a primary worker, it took from her the opportunity of attending Relief Society and Sunday school. She had almost determined to fall into inactivity rather than accept the change. One day, while brooding over this situation, the light of inspiration touched her heart, and she could see what the church was trying to do. It was not the loss of attendance of these two great meetings she was to be concerned with, but a new glorious opportunity of having prime time on the Lord's day to be with her husband and children, to to fulfill the greatest responsibility the Lord had entrusted to them, the responsibility of teaching and training her own. Now, after much prayer, study, and planning with her husband, Sunday has become the most special day of the week. If I were again cast in the role of having a young family around me, I think I would try to make these times that the church has set aside for family time more strictly followed and more properly organized to be more productive. 
With a change in the Sunday program, I believe I would alter our family format and our special weekly times together. Since most children in the world will never have the privilege of being taught and trained in a traditional family home, I would be determined to be certain that my children would have that privilege. I would want them to have the best possible experience in one that really worked. Eternal families just don't happen. To enjoy this greatest of all gifts, it must be earned by our accomplishments in mortality. I would be certain that sufficient time was provided each week for a family executive committee meeting to plan family strategy. The executive committee comprised of a husband and wife would meet together to fully communicate, discuss and plan, and prepare for our leadership roles in the family organization. I would make the family home evening on Monday night a family council meeting where children were taught by parents to prepare for their roles as family members and prospective parents. Family home evening would begin with a dinner together, followed by the council meeting where such topics were discussed and training given in temple preparation, missionary preparation, home management, career development, education, acquisition and care of real and personal property, family planning calendars, and so on. The evening could then be climaxed with a special dessert and time for parents to spend with each child. Saturdays would become a special activity day, divided into two parts. First, the time to teach children the blessings of work, how to care and improve the home, the yard, the garden, the field. And second, a time for family activity, to build a family heritage of things we enjoyed doing together. Sunday would become the most special day in the week. Careful preparation would precede the three-hour worship service at the chapel. Families would arrive at church rested, relaxed, and spiritually prepared to enjoy their meetings together. The balance of the day would be spent in a time of spiritual uplift. We would dress to fit the occasion, boys in something somewhat better than Levi's in a t-shirt, and girls in comfortable, decent dresses, not in shorts or slacks. It would be a time for our family to study the scriptures together, to do genealogical research, prepare personal journals, family histories, letter writing, missionary contacts, and visits to extended family, friends, and shut-ins. Third, in filling church positions, I would prepare, study, meditate, and pray more than ever before for guidance in the church positions I was called to. I would want my service to measure up to the standard the Lord would expect of me. I would be certain I was so well prepared for that assignment that my inefficiencies would not rob from me precious family time. I would understand more fully the Lord's system of of sharing responsibilities with counselors, high counselors, quorum officers, home teachers, and fathers. I would understand more fully the concept that one man can never outperform an effective team. And fourth, community involvement. I would have a greater involvement in what was going on in the schools my children were attending and the communities in which they lived. I would lend my support to the majority of my good neighbors to be certain that where I was living, 
children were having the privilege of growing up in, in, a, in a clean, safe, wholesome, happy community. I would not allow small, misguided, self-benefiting groups to rob from us the blessing of having such a family community. I pray that our harvest will be blessed with the fullness the Lord has promised us because we are living worthy of meriting those blessings. May our families be the traditional type where leadership is provided by two worthy parents who welcome children in their homes to be loved, taught, and trained in the ways prescribed by the Lord. I declare to you my witness that the Lord is strong and mighty. He is the King of glory. He lives to lead and guide and bless us with his love. May we be blessed with the faith to follow the way that he leads towards life eternal. I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My brothers and sisters, we must be more ready than we now are to receive the hundreds of thousands of individuals of every kind who are gathered into the gospel net from nearly every culture and circumstance. A few of these have said to their behavioral Babylons, We bid thee farewell, having learned the hard way that without the Decalogue there is decadence. Other newcomers have ceased trying to live without God in the world a condition contrary to the nature of happiness. They have seen how a mortal life so lived is no more than a night in a second-class hotel. Some will have even come out of the kingdom of the devil, which the Lord has promised to shake in order to stir some therein to repentance. These souls, bruised but believing, will have fought their way through guerrilla territory, searching for spiritual liberty, even as forces in the world seek to overthrow the freedom of all lands, nations, and countries. New arrivals are not asked to renounce their country or that which is good in their culture. All must, however, let go of the things which injure the soul, and there are some such things in every life and in every culture. Many will come into the Church whose lives have been consistently righteous. They will have the rejoicing without the wrenching. When all these individuals have come from so great a distance, surely we can go a second mile in friendshipping and fellowshipping them. If with quiet heroism they can make their way across the border into belief, surely we can cross a crowded foyer to extend the hand of fellowship. Has it been so long that we have forgotten our first anxious day at a new school or our timidity in a new neighborhood? In the city of Zion, there are constantly new kids on the block. Since priesthood leaders have determined that newcomers' visas are in order, let us greet them genuinely, not with frowns and skepticism. It will be our job to lift them up, not to size them up. They will have known much rejection. Now let them know much acceptance. The workers who come to his vineyard in the last hour will receive the same wages as the old-timers who should, by the way, speak less of the good old days and work to bring about even better days. The story is told of the first two Marines ever in the American Revolutionary War. One boarded a ship mere minutes ahead of the other. When the second man came on board, all enthused about being a Marine, the earlier arrival scornfully said, 
you should have been here in the old outfit. Paul said we should not expect the social register to enter the Church en masse. Besides, a who's who is not needed in a Church which teaches us all our real identity and which features a democracy of dress in the holy temples. Arrives will come into the Church as its leaders are cruelly caricatured by some in the world. For perspective, imagine how television six o'clock news would have portrayed Noah as he worked on his ark day by day. <laughs> Besides, adversarial attention is merely a cruel form of commendation if we can but stand the praise. Newcomers, you may even see a few leave the Church who cannot then leave the Church alone. Let these few departees take their brief bows in the secular spotlight. Someday they will bow deeply before the throne of the Almighty, confessing that Jesus is the Christ and that this is His work. Meanwhile, be unsurprised if, as the little stone seen by Daniel rolls relentlessly forth, some seek to chip away at it. Happily, mingled among the hundreds of thousands of recruits will be precious returnees who, like the prodigal son, have come to their senses. Filled with tender resolve, they too need a warm welcome. Let us emulate the father of the prodigal son, who ran to greet his son while the son was still a great distance away, rather than waiting passively and then skeptically asking the son if he had merely come home to pick up his things. Recruits and returnees should be counseled by the wise lyrics of the hymn, Think not when ye gather to Zion that all your troubles and trials are through, that all will be holy and pure, and confidence wholly secure, that the saints have nothing to do but to look to your personal welfare and always be comforting you. The Church is for the perfecting of the saints. Hence, new arrivals are entitled to expect instant community, but not instant sainthood, either in themselves or in others. It takes time and truth working patiently together to produce the latter in all of us. Meanwhile, as we work together, we notice each other's weaknesses. Hence, all are urged to succor the weak, to lift up the hands which hang down, and to strengthen the feeble knees. Involve newcomers quickly in the Lord's work. They have been called to His vineyard not just to admire, but to perspire, not to owe and awe, but to hoe and saw. <laughs> Let us make of them friends, not celebrities, colleagues, not competitors. Let us use their precious enthusiasm to beckon still others to come within. Let us listen lovingly and encouragingly as all newcomers utter their first halting public prayers and give their first tender talks, feeling unready and unworthy, but so glad to belong. We can tell them, by the way, that the sense of inadequacy never seems to go away. However, what we now are as a people is clearly not enough, for Zion must increase in beauty and holiness. As in the time of Alma, the bad conduct of a few members slows the work Indeed, Zion will not be fully redeemed until after we have first been chastened. Let us, therefore, not be too long-suffering with our own shortcomings. And when we are given thorns in the flesh, let us not demand to see the rose garden.
Let us participate regularly in the rigorous calisthenics of daily improvement and not just in the classroom rhetoric of eternal progression. Let all gospel instruction, the home or classroom, be a genuine experience in learning, not merely doctrinal ping-pong. Let us all understand, too, that those very doctrines and duties which seem the most puzzling or the least attractive may well be those we now most need. Whether old-timers, returnees, or recruits, we must all finally make that mighty change in our hearts, and this requires more than a slight change in our schedules. If there are disappointments, let us not turn away but turn to, remembering Peter's immortal interrogative of the Savior, Lord, to whom shall we go? There is, my brothers and sisters, no other plan of happiness, only multiple-choice misery. Let all of us be filled with quiet wonder, but also with quiet determination concerning the marvelous things we have been called to do in such stress-filled times. For the Lord shall comfort Zion. Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. As we build a holier Zion, with the voice of melody, we will sing those lyrics, All is well, all is well. But sometimes, as a reassuring sob, as well as a song, awaiting the promised day when sorrow and sighing shall flee away, with Paul we can say, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed. Perhaps adding, We are confronted but not surprised. We are falsely accused, but pray for our accusers. We are reviled, but respond with Christian service. Brothers and sisters, we can be walking witnesses and standing sermons to which objective onlookers can say a quiet amen. The Savior has told us that just as when the fig tree puts forth its leaves, we may know that summer is nigh, so it will be with his second coming. The foreseen summer of circumstances is now upon us. Let us not, therefore, complain of the heat. The Savior will be in our midst, saying, Fear not, little flock, urging us to do good, even as we are badly done by, until divine intervention mercifully halts human deterioration. For then all flesh shall see him together. And all nations shall tremble at his presence, and his coming makes a full end of all nations. And as there are no laws but his laws, there will be no more questions then about the historicity of Jesus of Nazareth. For the faithful of every kind, gladly gathered into his gospel net, there never was any question, only answers. Meanwhile, May God help us to receive more effectively all newcomers and returnees to Zion, even as God has so mercifully received us into His Church. There will be one more regal reception at the gate where Jesus is the sole gatekeeper. He awaits us there, not only to certify us, but because His divine love brings Him to welcome us. Hence He employeth no servant there. May we be ready to be so received 
as he leads us with his kindly light. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.